I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. You people sit tight, hold the fort, and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. You see, I take these glasses off. She looks like a regular person, doesn't she, huh? Put them back on, formaldehyde face. The president is dead. You got that? Somebody's had him for dinner. I killed him. You can't kill the boogeyman. We're not getting out of here alive. But neither is that thing. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. You can either ignore it, or you can help me to stop it. Hello, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Eric Connor, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy. This episode, we bring you the man who gave us Michael Myers, Snake Plissken, and an invisible Chevy Chase. Writer, director, composer, John Carpenter. John Carpenter's work covers a number of genres, from the sci-fi romance of Starman to the fantastical Big Trouble in Little China. But he's mostly considered a master of modern horror, even if that was not his original plan. You have to understand that horror found me. I didn't find it. I got typecast into this. I got in this business to make westerns. Westerns died. The westerns went away. And... Horror found me with Halloween. What happens in Hollywood, you get typecast. Oh, he made that, but let's offer him this. It's the same thing. They want you to do the same thing again and again and make money at it. But I've made a career out of it. I've got to become John Carpenter. What's wrong with that? (laughs) I'm happy about it. My influences were science fiction and horror movies and westerns and musicals, everything, when I was growing up, back in the 50s. I loved movies. And then when I went to film school, I got to watch the work of American classic directors. uh, Orson Welles, Howard Hawks, John Ford, and then world directors. And uh, that's where I really deepened my love for cinema. Mr. Carpenter's influences can be seen throughout his work, including his 1976 thriller, Assault on Precinct 13, a spiritual homage to Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo. There are no heroes anymore, Bishop. Only men who follow orders. Look, we're out of time, out of ammunition. Just like Wells, we're out of luck. I've never had too much faith in anyone coming to my rescue. Maybe you've been associating with the wrong people. I've been with policemen for five years. That's enough to grow hair on a rock. You're gonna get out of town. Take your boy here with you. You can tell Burdett you got Wheeler. You can tell him anybody else he sends, he better pay him more. Because they're gonna earn it. You want that gun, pick it up. I wish you would. Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World provided even more inspiration for Mr. Carpenter. He remade the film itself in 1982, but even before that, shades of Hawks' unstoppable boogeyman can be found in Mr. Carpenter's most famous film. Mr. Carpenter created the slasher genre with one film, and teenagers have never been safe since. Who's there? I met him 15 years ago. I I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. 
We had no clue. <laughs> We're just a bunch of kids making a movie. You know, we had been making an exploitation horror film. Back in those days, indies were not art house films. They were really exploitation films, action or horror or science fiction. There were little movies that a company could uh, bicycle around the country from one city to another. And that guy actually makes some money on it. And no, we had no idea. Nobody did. Nobody did. We're just having a good time making movies. We're young, <laughs> had hair. It was great. <laughs> Once his budgets became bigger, so did his stress. The minute you move out of a small project that you control, everything gets compounded. If you write it and you direct it and maybe you produce it and you hit up your friends and your family for the budget and you get something because you want to make a Hollywood movie or you want to make a feature film, the minute that you start dealing with Hollywood or well, I'd say the movie business is the minute you start learning what it's all about because people are putting up money to make money. So the pressure on you is to deliver some bucks for them. And I went to USC film school way back when. They didn't teach us how to deal with stress. They just assumed that you kind of bring that along with you. And nowadays, when you guys get your first feature, unless it's a big hit, I worry for you because they don't give you any time to mature as a filmmaker. It's one time and out. It's really ruthless these days. Every decision you make gets questioned unless you kind of maneuver your way through that and try to gouge out a space for yourself or make them afraid of you, where they're afraid to ask you to do anything. They're afraid to come down on you. And that's real hard to do. It's very tricky. Everybody faces this. And way do you get into a cast member who uh, wants to control your movie, tell you what to do, two weeks into a shoot because you can't fire him because you've shot all this footage and you're fucked big time. But it's all fine. Don't worry about a thing. Somebody in this camp ain't what he appears to be. Right now, that may be one or two of us. By spring, it could be all of us. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. No blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. 30 years, one reboot, and even a video game later, The Thing has withstood the test of time and is now viewed as a modern horror classic. But it didn't start out that way. The Thing was not a commercial nor critical success when it was released. It was released the summer of 82 when this same studio released E.T. and everybody wanted an up cry. They didn't want a downbeat, uh, end of the world type deal. I think uh, the fans turned on the film pretty severely because they thought I raped a classic. The original Christian Nyby, Howard Hawks picture. Anyway, I didn't recover from the disaster of that movie for quite a while. I mean, movies can last. They can last beyond their initial box office release. Now, you guys may not be aware of how many classic American films came out with bombs. Nobody liked them. And then they grew. You know, Citizen Kane wasn't a great hit. Vertigo was condemned and was a, was a failure upon its release. It's a Wonderful Life, that movie they show on Christmas, and it tanked. Nobody wanted to see it. 
It was only later that it was shown on television and in home video that it became popular again. So it's really, it's really odd what happens. The thing's use of practical effects continues to impress, even in the modern age of green screens and CGI. In the case of the thing, the creature was very ill-defined in its screenplay and in everybody's thinking. Nobody knew what to do with it. And there's an old-fashioned idea, I guess it goes back to Val Luton, that if you're going to make a movie about a monster, you never want to really see it. You want to keep it in the dark because it's more effective that way. At least that's the thinking in kind of rich, liberal, middle-brow Hollywood. And I made the mistake of trying something different, which is to bring this thing out into the light and show it. And uh, show it going through its gyrations in front of you because of the story. See, the story is about this creature, this alien who can imitate anything and has throughout his travels or her travels in the universe. So when it starts imitating to survive, it's going to start looking like the other creatures that it's imitated. And also, it has no respect for the human form or body, so it's going to rip apart. Which I thought was, in the 1980s, there was a big, huge body culture going on, in America at least, maybe the world. There's a lot of the Jane Fonda workout. Everybody got concerned about how they looked, their bodies, and how thin they were. It was huge. And I thought, well, this is a great time to just kind of take that and go, <laughs> let me let me disturb you on a basic level here about the way you look and about your body because really nobody gives a shit. <laughs> that was the thought. Rob Botine was my special effects coordinator and creator, and he said it can look like anything. So let's make stuff that looks amazing. So I had a whole raft of designers just designing uh, art, and it, it went from everything. There's one. Scene it looks like a flower, and when another scene it's of course this guy's head comes off, which is the, my favorite scene in the film. But uh, we did it, and the audiences went and hated it. And uh, years later, everybody's going ooh and ah, but that's the way it goes. Though the tools have changed, the process of making movies remains almost dogmatically the same. You know, that's one thing I wish had changed about the movie business. That has never changed. It is a grind to make a film. To make a big film, it's a real grind. In terms of the technology of movie making, that, that constantly changes. And it's a tool. You guys got to look at it like a tool. It's something that can further your vision of whatever you're doing, whether it's a mat shot, or whether you're imagining some creature that's impossible, or whether you're imagining some world that you want to explore. The technology at your disposal now is unlike anything that's ever been before. It's great, you guys are lucky. You're also lucky that you can buy or rent or get a hold of inexpensive equipment and you can do it on digital and make your own damn movie. So we didn't have that when I was young. And you guys can watch movies. And you can watch old films. You can watch them on DVD or you can watch them on, on, on whatever. You can watch them on your telephone, your iPhone. So you guys are really lucky and am envious of where you are and the time you've come along. 
But they've never improved, they've never streamlined the motion picture technique. They still do it on a board. They still figure out the shooting days on a board, whether it's a virtual board or actually they make one with strips. And it's an eighth of a page and a half a page, and you shoot three and a half pages in a day. Can I, can I get that done in the afternoon? They make you get up, at, you know, and show up at seven in the morning. Well, no one's ready to do creative shit at seven in the morning. <laughs> I haven't even had coffee yet. And it's, it's, so it's always the same. Then, they, then in television and some low-budget films, they start the work week on Monday, seven in the morning. And then during the week, they move the call time back. So on Friday, you're shooting nights. And they do that because they can cheat you because you don't have the time on the weekend to catch up on your rest to start again Monday. It's a grind. No one has fixed that. No one has made it better. And I don't understand why. The Directors Guild tried to show the studios that if you work three or four days a week, you could get more done. Because the crew wouldn't be so tired. Because we've actually had deaths of people driving home after working 17, 18 hour days, they get into a car accident. And they didn't want to hear about it. Because they're geared to punish the filmmaker. No, they're not. But I'm saying that because <laughs> it's awful. I don't know. You, maybe you guys love to get up in the morning. I never did. I was always. So anyway, that would be if one of you could design a system of shooting a movie that wasn't this same old factory setup that we've had since the beginning of studios and make it work and make it easier on people, you'd make millions of dollars, okay? And if you could figure out how to light a scene quicker, this was what I hoped when digital came in. I hoped that we wouldn't have to spend all the time we do on film lighting a scene. Why can't these cameramen come up with some simple techniques? Why do they have to have top light and back light and side light? What is all that shit? <laughs> That's the other thing that really hasn't changed, some of the lighting schemes. I, there was a big change in the 70s when they did overhead lighting on the Godfather movies, they just used tarps and shoot through bed sheets and stuff like that, make it all come from overhead with shadows and faces. And nowadays you can work the contrast or the color or the exposure on a computer. So it's a lot simpler that way. And you can kind of get the effect of that. But the basics of cinematography haven't changed. One of John Carpenter's most recognizable tools is his use of music. It only takes a few notes to know you're watching a John Carpenter film. He scored almost all his own movies, with one notable exception. The nature of music, what it does for films, is enhance the scenes. And for The Thing, the music was done by Ennio Morricone, he's a rather famous composer. The spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood and Once Upon a Time in the West were scored by him. He's an incredible artist and composer. And we had a chance to work with him on this. And uh, he was just brilliant. His job is to narrate and characterize and provide a sensuality to the film through music. That's his whole job. And anytime I do music myself, all I do is accentuate the scenes and make them work. Try to cover up the f ups that I do as a director through music. <laughs> Directors will often talk lovingly, or not so lovingly, about their stars. 
Mr. Carpenter raved about one cast member in The Thing who was both remarkably instinctual and dangerously volatile. The main dog in this was a wolf. And uh, they're smarter, but they're a little dangerous. <laughs> so on the set, he would come in and we'd have minimal crew. We'd have the operator, focus puller, myself, and the dolly grip, and the actors. And for about 15 to 20 minutes, he would wander around us and get used to our smell. He said, don't pet him, don't touch him, don't necessarily look at him. Just sit here, don't talk loud, let him be with you a little bit. And he did something in one shot I've never seen an animal do. His job as actor was to come down a hallway, look in a room on the left, look in a room on the right, look back in a room on the left, stand there, and then go in. And we put a camera right in front of him. And we're tracking with him down the hallway. And his job also was not to look in the camera. And by God, this dog did it seven or eight times, just like that. It was jaw-dropping. Now, he's not with us anymore. Jeb is his name. He was a great, great dog and a great actor. We didn't use him in every shot. We used stand-in dogs. But the trainer brought a unique performing animal to the movie. And had I not had that dog, the movie wouldn't be as good. He was unbelievable. So yeah, animals can be really tough. Uh, horses don't stop where you want them to. They take a shit in the middle of the scene. <laughs> Uh, you know, if you watch westerns, you see all sorts of things go on that you, you took for granted when you were watching them, but you see actors kind of, they're out of control. I watch a scene in the original True Grit nowadays where somebody's about to fire a shot and you see John Wayne reach up and grab the horse he's on before the shot's fired so he knows the horse is going to bolt. So he's just thinking ahead, just trying to control it for the shot. Kids, boy, there's some great kid actors. They just come and do it, so you don't have to really worry too much. Then there's some that are troubled. It all depends, man. But and generally speaking, you know, you just don't know with kids and animals. You get the right, right ones, and you're all set. His praise for frequent leading man Kurt Russell was equally as effusive. He's a great, great performer, great actor. He's, you know, he thinks he's old now. He doesn't want to do any more action movies. He believes some strange things sometimes. And I, I don't know if you know about Kurt Russell. He is to the right of Attila the Hunt. I mean, he is extreme right. And I'm extreme left. But it's love of cinema and love of the craft of movies that keeps us together. So that just shows you what the important things are in life. If you love something, the movie making process, in our case, then you can get along. You never know. Yeah, that's one thing you say in this business, never say never about anything. You just don't know what's gonna happen. But uh, now he's been a friend for many years, many years. I, I, Kurt's a great guy. And he um, can imitate, like the thing, he can do an imitation of anybody, of any actor. He does an imitation of me. It's unbelievable. He's a born mimic. That's one of the reasons he's such a great actor, is he mimics people. It's really astonishing. Though he's known for slicing and dicing his cast on screen, Mr. Carpenter always shows his actors the utmost respect. 
I want to see several things at once. I want to see, first and foremost, what do they look like, you know, in person? Is there a bad angle? And secondly, the personality. Are they open? Are they guarded about being directed or authority figures? What do they think of the screenplay and the material? How much do they want to change? You're trying to assess all these different things real quickly. But directors are all different in how they deal with casting. Clint Eastwood, for instance, casts off of tapes that are submitted to it. He doesn't read anybody. He gets a list of a bunch of actors, put their performances on tape, and he pops it in the machine, that one, not that one, that one. That's how he casts. So it's different for everyone. Depends on what you're comfortable with. I want to sit down with somebody and see if we can have a connection because that's what acting and directing is all about. My job as a director is to be there to help you give the performance. Whatever you need as an actor is what my job is to provide. If you need a bad father, I can be mean all the time. If you need a good father, I can be that. A psychiatrist, it all depends on the person. That's so, the whole secret yeah. of all of it, is to everybody get comfortable. Get comfortable with a guy who's directing you as an actor and the director getting comfortable that you have the ability to do it. Even if it means running afoul of the screenwriters. From personal experience, the two experiences that I've had with screenwriters, one was on Big Trouble in Little China, and one was on this movie I made called Memoirs of an Invisible Man. It's made a Chevy Chase movie. And both times, my choice of leading lady, the writer and writers were not very happy with, and they wanted to rewrite the scenes. And in the case of Big Trouble in Little China, Kim Cattrall came to me and said, please get this guy away from me. He makes me feel like shit. he's tearing me down. He doesn't like me. He doesn't think I can play this part. And everybody thought of Kim Cattrall at that time as sort of the girl from Porky's who could do an orgasm. <laughs> they didn't take her seriously. But she's just a terrific comedian, just terrific. So I had to throw him off the set. And, and he's a friend of mine. And then the same thing with uh, Daryl Hannah. She comes to play this part, and the writers start writing her like, like some stupid girl. And she says, what are they doing? I signed on to do this. So we had to, I just had to get rid of them. The writers want to be on the set. The Writers Guild wants the, the same contract that writers have in plays where you can't change a word. And uh, that's what they've always wanted. And they hate directors, hate directors. And they hate people changing their words. And I don't blame them. I'm a writer, I didn't, I didn't like it either, but that's the way it is. You know, actors will come in and say, oh, I'm gonna change that, and say whatever they want to. So it's a mixed thing, you know? A famous story, a cautionary tale about a movie called, uh, God, I can't remember the name of it, uh, Altered States, a movie I particularly like. Patty Chayefsky was the writer of that and was on the set and just gave him hell because it wasn't the way he wanted it and ended up taking his name off and changing it. And you get that sometimes. It's not pleasant. Well, after we started working, if you get the actors to say anything close to what you write, you're happy. Almost all of Mr. Carpenter's biggest films have been rebooted or remade or given a whole bunch of sequels, which is not the least bit surprising to him. First of all, remakes in general are popular now because of the amount of money a company has to spend advertising to get people in the theaters. 
And one way to cut through the clutter of advertising that's out there is to come with a title in recent memory that they've heard of. So for instance, all the horror remakes, the thinking is maybe you saw it with your brother when you were young on home video, or you've seen it on television, and we're gonna update it. So it has a built-in awareness, which is the number that they're trying to reach to get the audience, the customer out there, aware that your movie is in the theaters. It's called show business. It's not called show art. Unless you're very lucky or very successful, like Jim Cameron can write his own movies and have Final Cut and get them in the theaters. If you're the, like the rest of us peons, uh, you have to compete with other films that are out there. And one way of driving through to the audiences that your movie's going to be playing is to do a remake because the title's familiar. The title has awareness. I mean, look at the number of movies that open every weekend. And people, it's all a blur to them. Well, oh, maybe I want to see the Adam Sandler movie, but I don't care about this other one. So you're trying to penetrate this advertising fog, and that's one way of doing it. But there are still really fine, really creative movies being made now. Don't subscribe to that idea. It's all bullshit. There's no <laughs> Even remakes, they'll just do a new take on something, completely different. And that tends to be why they remake horror. Horror has been with cinema since the very beginning. It grew up part and parcel with cinema. And it will always be with us. It's one of the most popular genres of all time. And it's an all-purpose genre because it keeps changing. Every culture, every few years, it, it morphs. It changes into something else. It brings the sensibilities of the age in which it's made. That's what's so fabulous. If you look at Frankenstein or Dracula or The Bride of Frankenstein, the Karloff films, they're very much of the 30s and the Depression. They're Depression-era movies. They're speaking to those audiences. But if you look at modern horror films, they're speaking to you guys. And they bring the sensibility that you've become used to seeing and you demand seeing in film. These remakes have enabled Mr. Carpenter to fulfill one of his lifelong dreams. My absolute favorite part of this business is that when somebody wants to remake one of my films, what I do is, if I've written it or originated the idea, I extend my hand like this, and they put a check right in my hand. And I don't have to do anything. In my entire life, I've been trying to figure out how to make money at doing nothing. <laughs> As a student raised on classic cinema, John Carpenter is now the one influencing others. Escape from New York, The Thing, Halloween, and his other films continue to resonate with audiences and inspire filmmakers, even decades after they first hit the big screen. John Carpenter has truly earned the title, Master of Horror. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, based on the Q&A moderated by Chris Devane. The episode was edited and mixed by Christian Hayden, produced by David Andrew Nelson, Christian Hayden, and myself. Executive produced by Jean Sherlock and Dan Mackler. Associate produced by Vinny Sisson. A special thanks to Saja Johnson and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe and, you liked us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
See you next time.